And welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the coach at University of Houston, Deputy Director of High Performance West, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus, the Director of High Performance West. John, what's up? You know what's up. We're here to give the people what they want. Yes, we're back, baby. I love the enthusiasm, and you know what? Today is about something that requires enthusiasm, produces a lot of enthusiasm, and that is breakthrough performances. How do you break through? What does it look like? Uh, what does it look like afterwards? We're going to go, what does it look like before? What do we, We're going to go through um, kind of how, how a breakthrough occurs and... Um, and the things to look out for in terms of uh, when they might be approaching, how those peaks and valleys before and after come about, and uh, all that good stuff around performances. That's right. We're here to take the confusion out of the mystical, oh, breakthrough, breakthrough performance and give some very clear identifiers, ingredients, and recipes so that when it does occur, one can use that momentum in a positive way to help facilitate and further their competitive performing excellence rather than backslide into the valley of despair. Man, I, all, all this time I thought we were supposed to add to the confusion with our, our <laughs> rambling. That's, uh, that's that's been my understanding. So Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the tangents. You know, somehow we though we we try to always bring it back to a little clear note at the end. So Thanks, as always, for everyone sticking with with us throughout each podcast and throughout the years. It means a lot. Yes, yes. That's why we're still doing it. So maybe this will be a breakthrough podcast or we're on our way to a breakthrough or maybe we're in a valley. Who knows? <laughs> or a plateau. You know, it is what it is. It but... is. Whatever it is, we're just going to keep plugging away. So um, breakthroughs. So one of the interesting things. That and I think this will be a good place to start. One of the interesting things I did a couple of years ago was I looked up all the uh, the American, European, British, etc. Five uh, k women, five k runners who had run under fifteen minutes for five k, and then also under fifteen ten. And I plotted all their progressions and, and tried to take out anyone who was like suspected or known doper to take that out of there. And uh, what was very interesting is like when the athletes got to their sub 15 performance or their lifetime PR, whatever it was, you know, 1455, 1450, whatever it was, what was interesting is the norm was a breakthrough to get there. So the norm wasn't, oh, I'm going to chop five seconds off every year. The norm was breakthrough right? Maybe I think on average, it was something like a 16 second drop to where they got to their PR. Um, mm -hmm. So breakthrough. And then the next year, regress back to almost where they were like the year before, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there was like this big improvement, then it's like up oh, back to reality. And then a lot of them or some of them would come back down towards their, their breakthrough performance. But I found that really interesting because I think a lot of times in this sport, we have this idea in our head that like, if you were to plot out improvement uh, on a graph, it's almost like it's either like this linear, like mm -hmm. progression the whole way, or some people envision it as like stair stepping the whole way. But there's always like this 
upward kind of progressive, uh, gradual improvement. And instead, the reality might be, and I haven't looked at every sport, but the reality might be that it's actually a big jump. And then you have to figure out how to consolidate and stay there and maybe improve on that. Yeah. And I think just to, you know, clarify the definition of breakthrough, we're looking at this as a watershed performance moment, you know, specifically if we're talking about running and track and field athletes, you know, on the track or on the cross country course or on the roads. So this is where, and Steve and I have all worked with many athletes, and I'm sure a lot of coaches have as well, who have had you know, breakthrough races and breakthrough seasons and even breakthrough years where they were significantly more competitive, significantly faster than they were from any previous incarnation of themselves prior to that. And that's a very exciting moment. However, what we've noticed over our long many years of coaching is that it's not necessarily translatable and sustainable to where you're going to find some um, dynamic equilibrium where we're just going to stay at that that breakthrough um, uh, uh, place instead of, you know, and that's what we want to think is that, okay, then we're going to make a leap and make a leap to infinity. However, sometimes what a breakthrough is is a peak, and then it's always, you know, going to be followed by somewhat of a valley the next season, especially if it comes, like as Steve here noted with his study, um, when you're reaching that upper edge or upper limit of elite relative for the um, event or age group that you're coaching, elite level athletes, it's just very difficult to naturally without any you know, illicit supplementation to sustain that over the long haul. But you can f- see these, find these markers for when a breakthrough is on or when someone's on the cusp of a breakthrough before it happens in training and in their preparation. And Steve, what are a couple of those, you know, qualifiers that you've noticed or seen a pattern of before someone's about ready to have a a breakthrough performance or a breakthrough season? Yeah, you know, uh, that's a good question, John. I think what I look at is I almost call it like a a smoothness or in the zone in training, right? Mm. Where a lot of times what happens is people just start being, they start being able to just click things off, right? So I see workouts where it's like, oh, I thought this was going to be a nine out of 10 for them, but you know what? It was tough, but like they handled it and they walked away and they were okay, right? It was a seven, right? Mm -hmm. And they stop, like when I know a breakthrough is occurring is they're stop stopping pressing for the workout to make it impressive, but instead, like, they're still working, but it just kind of naturally comes to them, right? So when I start seeing signs of that, of good consistent works where it's, like, maybe a little bit elevated, but really they're just feeling better hitting the stuff, then I know, okay, this person's on the right track. The other thing that I think happens a lot of times where where I can see it is when I let someone, when I let the reins off of someone on a workout, let's say they're doing, I don't know, five by mile. And uh, on the fifth mile, say, all right, like, hey, just work it down the last 800. And don't give them any times. Don't give them anything like that. But you see them just 
work it down, work it down, work it down. And it's almost like they have this ability to go through every gear that they have. And they're not just like forcing the gear. They're not just like, you know, uh, pulling out everything they got in the engine, but you just see the smooth transition down in terms of, of, uh, going through the gears and you're just like, dang, that person's ready to go. Um, yeah, I call that, you know, you know, we call that something like that, say going to the well, but I call it, um, in that instance, like the well is deep. Yeah. So you can go to the well, but if the well is deep and you go to it, there's not that much penalty for it, right? You don't empty it. And that's the concept of chopping wood and carrying water. You know, you hear this a lot in Zen Buddhism and you hear, you know, like myself, uh, you know, Steve said it before, Mike Smith, Danny Mackey, Drew Ordenberg, you know, many other athletes have adopted this philosophy of chop wood, carry water. And what it is, it's a, a Zen koan or Zen parable where before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. So you continue to do the thing that got you there. Without thinking, oh, I need to do things radically different now. Now I'm at this new level, a new ability. I should just, you know, forget what I was doing before because now I've, you know, I just earned the right or I have the luxury to slack off or to do more crazy and insane things or copy someone else's, you know, preparation. And that's not the case at all. It's like, how do you get to a breakthrough performance? is, you know, what has become hyper-popular nowadays but very opaque is this terminology of investing in the process or owning the process, right? And when you own your process and you own what you're doing every single day and you're just focused in the moment of just executing to the best degree or skillfulness you can that task in front of you and the reward is the journey or the act of the task – and just doing it because you, it's, you find it enjoyable and you are enthused about the challenge, that's the thing that's going to keep propelling you day in and day out over and over and over again to lead you to the you know um, threshold for a breakthrough performance or a breakthrough season. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that work, that works so well is because it puts the it, it puts the emphasis on the process, right? And when you have the emphasis on the process, you're worried about doing things good in the moment at that time. And then when you get done with that, you're worried about doing the next next whatever workout, next run or whatever good in the moment at that time. And when you do that, like you stop forcing yourself uh, trying to force your way to a performance improvement yeah i mean the process is brilliant in its simplicity if you simply execute what's important at that moment to the best of your ability without undue regard for the outcome then your chances of ultimately getting the result you want exponentially increase exactly and i think that's the great paradox of like uh of striving if we call it that, is like if you want it too bad, then it's not going to happen because you're going to start straining and and forcing it to happen. But most of the time, breakthroughs occur when like you're able to take yourself off of that and not trying to force it. Um, at a high well, you have to disengage yeah. from the status okay. associated with you know however many miles you're running a week, what you're practice times are what you're you know and that's the hardest thing to do because we're fighting human nature if you haven't read robert green's law of human laws of human nature you must it is (laughs) phenomenal i've 
been recommending it to everyone. I just been getting on Steve here before we get him online. He says, I got it. I'm going to read it. I mean, don't get uh, discouraged by it being 600 pages. It's, I write in eight days. I just chewed it up. And, you know, we are status-seeking creatures. We're mammals. So are chimps, so are all mammals. There's a hierarchy hardwired into us. Now, to disengage from that status, you know, because it's so easy to go on Strava or, you know, FlowTrack or MileSplit or whatever and compare where you're currently at to where everyone else is at, that's the investment in the process. That is just focusing on your execution of chopping wood and carrying water and not getting caught up in the urgency or getting caught up in the impatience to elevate your status. It's kind of like artists who make amazing shows or of art, right? Those artists will spend two, three, four, five years developing this entire show uh, for, you know, uh, an art show of theirs. And over, you know, 80% of the work they did doesn't even make it onto the gallery floor. But their process and their commitment to that of finding their their be- or creating their best work and doing work that matters to them, that's the thing that allows those 20% of those pieces that they created in that period make it to the gallery floor and then hopefully, you know, wow or um, catch the attention of the art world. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. So I was I was sitting with one of my student athletes at uh, at Houston the other day and we were having a chat. And he's a sophomore. He said, you know, when I started getting good in in high school, my high school coach uh, pulled me aside and said, "Uh, you can be better at this, but your problem is you need to stop caring as much. Mm -hmm. And the high school kid, he was really during his high school years, he said, like, I was like, what? Like, no, to be great, you have to care a lot. And he Mm -hmm. was like, at first, I didn't understand the message. But the message was exactly there. It's, it wasn't that like, hey, you shouldn't care about doing this, but you're caring about the status of it, right? Mm, yes. Of just like, I'm going to be great because I want, you know, this, this, and this, and this. And instead, like, you need to let that go to free yourself up to run to your potential. Mm-hmm. And I think that in today's modern world and I'll play I'll put my old man hat on for a second. <laughs> Get off the grass, young kids. It, yes. Get off the grass. That's that's when you know uh we've been doing this for a while, right? We can uh I'll mm-hmm. I'll put my old old man hat on. Um but there there is something that's changing about this generation because um you uh you grow up in a status-filled world where you're constantly judged. Actually in his book uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, I think it's called The Coddling of America. Uh, Another great book. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so he talks about, there's actually been research that shows that I, I've, I think it was, uh, we're used to calling kids millennials, but that is actually not true. Um, the generation we're f- referring to is like the I generation because. Yes, or it, Z. Generation or Z, I. Yeah. As it's, an I about me or Z. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's that generation that grew up basically during the when the iPhone came out, right? Which mm-hmm. changed people's ability to connect, but also changed people's ability to essentially judge each other um, and sit there and be judged. And it became part of uh, this culture uh, without yep. going 
too far into it. But well, be- I mean, and and it, again, it's it's not the generation's fault. The kids didn't exactly. come out the womb and say, "Oh, I want to have this technology," because what this technology do or does, what Instagram does, what Facebook does, more so Instagram than anything, it hijacks in the um, chemicals in our brain associated with envy and value judgment and status and hierarchy, et cetera. And this is, you know, it hurts actually more so than um, men, actually women, according to Jonathan Haidt, because women tend to be more relational based. Like how is the relation to each other? And then, and I've had this happen to me several times when I was, you know, wouldn't like something that was posted by, you know, a female friend of mine. She would get all upset about it and she'd go, why didn't you like it? Because she noticed that I didn't like it. Well, I was like, dude, I don't go on Instagram like ever. It's just not my bag. I'm not into that thing. But that's creating, you know, subconscious and covert statuses. And then that's also creating, you know, greater and greater, greater um, amounts of depression, not just in women, but also young boys, because we're constantly now having to live up to this projection of our peer group, not just advertisements and models and fake, but now we have a projection being a front being put on by everyone we know. And so, you know, what happens when people go out on vacation, you see the absolute best pictures, the 10 best pictures of vacation. Oh my God, it was so awesome all the time. Never mind the kid was crying with the bickering with the spouse or the in-laws or the car broke down or, you know, that we got food poisoning for a day. You know, the, the, all we see are the peaks of life. And so it looks like people are constantly on the peak. And you know what? That is 1000% bullshit. Most of life is a valley, right? And the reason athletes have always had kind of a leg up comparative, you know, in development to other um, types of um, disciplines is athletes were supposed to learn the lesson of resiliency, of trying your best, putting all your effort into it and losing, and then having to come back and play another game, run in a race. But now it's almost like this um, the fail, the, the promise of failure is too much for this generation because they're used to being exposed to a digital environment. That's very much their world of it being constantly a virtual reality of constant success. And that is super burdensome for a developing brain and also someone who's developing their relations and how they, you know, interact with other people to process. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good point and almost like a sidebar, but I think it's important because if you look at the generations that we're coaching now, it's, it's that generation, right? And it's understanding the, uh, the, uh, what they're going through and what their, uh, their foundation is. Mm -hmm. Um, and that changes a little bit of how we coach, how we motivate, what, what we put the emphasis on, et cetera. Oh, it has to a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause like you have to realize that these people are used, used to being, used to being judged. Right. And used to having that, that almost feedback of, uh, of where they stand regardless. And, and also, um, there's a, sorry, we're going to throw a lot of books at you cause that's what we do. There's another <laughs> book that was written by Elaine de Botton, uh, a couple years ago, but it's still really relevant, uh, called Status Anxiety. 
where he, mm-hmm. at the very beginning of this whole phenomena, phenomena, he wrote a, a very good book on how it's changing, uh, changing a generation and changing, uh, well, changing our approach, um, not just that generation, but everyone's, uh, based on, on, um, you know, how we judge and what we're valued there. And I think when you tie it back to performance, it, it, the way I've noticed it on the college side is that, they're used to seeing everything on Instagram that is, you know, the best ever, right? The best vacation, the best they look, the best they choose. Workout, yeah, yeah the best new, it, new clothes, it, it, whatever. Exactly. But, you know, race results are also on the internet and also out there for to judge, but you can't pick and choose what ones those are. Right. So there's a culture of, uh, of a fear of failure um, and a fear of 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 taking risks because if you do fail it's public right mm-hmm. and even if no one really gives a shit if you finish 20th or 60th at conference besides you and your friends and your coaches and whatever it feels like the world kind of does because it's there and they're used to saying sending stuff in the world and if it's there then people judge so mm-hmm. You have to spend a lot more time, I found, of giving people the permission to, uh, to be able to risk and be able to fail and like recentering people on, uh, based on, on what they judge success or failure as, uh, and realize, get them to realize on like who counts. So we spend a lot of time, my college team talking about, all right, um, Whose opinion, whose opinion actually matters to you, right? And whose opinion doesn't matter, but you still get their feedback because of social media, et cetera, et cetera. And why do we assign value to people whose opinions don't matter and give them, uh, give them space in our head, right? Where it, mm-hmm. it, it impacts us mentally, uh, emotionally, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, mammals are, game playing creatures all mammals in naturally play games right tiger cubs or lion cubs will play games humans all we do is play games like all all society and the convention norms that we live in like the world we live in is a game and some games we know the rules to right so like driving down the street it's a game there's rules. These lines, these turn signals, this much space between cards, stop when you see a stop sign or a red light. That's a game. And school is a game. Um, you know, saving money, making money, that's a game. So you have to ask yourself as a coach, and then you also have to explicitly now ask the athletes, what game are you playing and what are the rules? Because if we can establish the rules and also establish the game, then people have a better opportunity and a better understanding about how to succeed and do well at that game. Because you as a coach might be coaching to one thing and talking about all this like, oh yeah, you know, philosophical stuff, the process, chop wood, carry water. And the athletes don't get it because they're not playing that game. And they're playing the, I want to, you know, find some self-value, you know, and find some status and find some belonging in this world. And to me, that equates to, what time I ran the mile or what time I ran the 5k because that puts me in a rank order because now everything's ranked order for every you know level, every division online. And you can see how you rank compared very clearly compared to your peer globally 
you know, in the conference, in the state, etc. And it's almost like the winning, winning a dual meet, winning an, a, a small college invite, a big college invite. It's almost like winning isn't enough now because everybody can win. There's so many races to be won. And so the mindset is, well, in order to have higher status, if I run really, really fast, then I'm ranked higher. Even if I got like fourth in a race, but it was a super fast race, now I'm ranked higher even though I've never won anything than this person who all they do is win, but they haven't won in a faster time. And you see that played out in championship settings, right? Athletes have no idea how to race. Some athletes have no idea how to race competitors in a quote unquote tactical race because they, you know, have been blindsided and the game they're playing is a, is a status game related to time. And that's difficult in a obstacle and a huge barrier to overcome when you're trying to get to a breakthrough because you know you can look at and say a breakthrough is a fast time but i tend to say what breakthroughs performance breakthroughs are is an ability to replicate so you know and it, that's for me if we're going to do all this preparation you want to be able to replicate over and over and over and over again either this ability to compete with the um, competitors in your space or be able to produce a certain type of performance, you know, with a very small um, width of tolerance. So I'll give you a good example of like Michaela Fricker in 2016. That was all her training, all our talk, all our discussion was about being able to run 202 to 2 flat, you know, over and over and over again, just just hey i want you to just be a machine you can do this we're going to train you to do this because you had you know olympic trials that year and the plan was to put her through rounds where she had to run two rounds on back-to-back days you know and then a day off and then a final so and we knew it would take just to get through the rounds about 202 to two flat and you had to be able to run that or faster to try and make the olympic team so she only made it to the second round but after the Olympic trials, she went on to run five more races within a span of four weeks, five more 800s, 201 every time. <laughs> didn't matter the type of race, didn't matter the weather, didn't matter the pacing, didn't matter. 201 every time. <laughs> you know, so to me, I was like, you had a breakthrough season, even though it was difficult for her to emotionally process not making the Olympic team, which was, you know, a big goal for us at, at that time. I was really excited for her because that's really tough to do to run 201 that consistently, you know, over and over and over again. I think she ran 201 that season seven or eight times. And I mean, it was just like clockwork. So to me, that's kind of more of a breakthrough season, an example of it, instead of just saying, oh my gosh, we went to Stanford and you ran this amazing 10K. And how many times have we seen that? Like a collegian woman run like a 32 flat 10k at Stanford and everything's perfect. And they're like, you've reached this new plateau, this new threshold, this new breakthrough. Oh, you're going to be able to easily win NCAs or blah, 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 blah. And everyone gets super duper excited about it only to have you know, all that pressure, you know, not actually be of value and of help and not, and then uh, NCAs or USAs, they're sitting there in 10th or they finish 15th. Right. And that's another way, like, how you look at or perceive what a breakthrough really is can actually hinder rather than help if you're not um, foresight enough and really thinking about 
you know, deeply, what is a breakthrough, how you qualify it, and then how you define it and how you shepherd and guide someone to that and then sustain them. Yeah, you know, it's funny as we talk about this, it's, it's kind of funny how much of this is about defining what you're talking about. Yeah, we have to define the rules of the game. And we have to define the language. If we don't, you know, we're all we're all going to be just frustrated and poor for it. Yeah, that's it's funny because I think sometimes, and what I found too is uh, I've gotten older. Is I, is you neg- you neglect these things, right? Because in my head, I'm used to like defining what these things are, right? And it's like, oh, I know what success and failure for you is in this race, or a good and a bad race, or like here's my expectations and you get used to it because you're like carrying these expectations around of like what these things are. Um, but athletes often have, especially young ones, uh, completely different expectations and understanding, right? We, f- we forget when we've been in this business long enough that it's easy for us to discern like around what they should do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's difficult for, uh, for them. And, you know, I've, so this year at, at Houston, I've, uh, had to learn this lesson multiple times because we have, uh, we have on the men's side a cross country team that is essentially, well, our seven to regionals are, uh, are four freshmen, uh, sophomore and two 800 guys running a 10K, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, and the reason is that is we had a very large, uh, senior class last year and then we redshirted our, our redshirting our number one guy who's a junior. So who has some experience. So it's a young squad. And because we had a large senior class who'd been with me for four or five years, um, you know, last year you take things for granted because you're used to speaking the same language because you developed together mm-hmm. um, that language. And then a new class comes in and you you literally forget that oh, like they don't have the same language language as I am. They don't understand what I mean when I say hey, during this just this eight k like you need to get out, but you need to be smooth doing it right? You don't need to press. What does that mean? Well, I have to explain it all over again, essentially, and reteach it all over again. And then on the other side of it is like defining what success and failure is because they've never done this before. So I remember one race where I was like, hey, that was that was pretty good. But they were bummed because they finished, you know, far back in, in the race. But they ran really well given their capabilities and where they're at, but they couldn't see that because like they were used to defining success um, again, because a lot were coming out of high school, defining success solely based on where they finished uh, place wise in the meet. And because they were good quality high school kids, like, you know, even at the state meet that might've been, you know, ninth or 10th place. Um, so it's not like it, it's that far back, but when you get in a big invitational in your 70th place, I, it doesn't matter how good you run. If you're used to defining it in that way, you're sitting there like, oh my gosh, I have 70 people out of me. That must have sucked. Yeah. And that's the difficult thing is we as coaches, I think, need to develop the posture of a guide. And we also need to understand the athletes are the hero in their journey. And this goes back to Joseph Campbell's, you know, um, uh, you know, the myth of, I think, a thousand faces or, you know, some one of those books where he defines the hero's journey. And here's the archetype is the hero has the call to action, right? 
And because they have a call to action, they're compelled to do something. However, the heroes, we, you know, it's a misnomer term because we often think as the hero is they have everything together. They, you know, they got it all on point. They, they got their P's and Q's all, you know, crossed and ready to roll. But it's not. The hero actually is lacking core qualities and characteristics and ability. And so what they have to do, they have to solicit a guide or come upon a guide who has been there and done that and who can show shepherd and show them the way. And you look at this karate kid, Mr. Miyagi, you know, um, star Wars, Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda. I mean, uh, Harry, uh, not Harry Potter. Um, the Lord of the Rings, you have, um, you know, Gandalf as the guide for, um, both Bilbo when he was, you know, going through the, uh, the Hobbit and then, uh, Elijah Wood's character. So, you know, you, you, it's just it's hardwired in us this hero's journey and the whole idea is the apprenticeship or the time that the hero spends with the guide allows them to avoid failure avert you know failure and survive and actually gives them the opportunity to come into their own from through some sort of challenging test you have to fight the dragon you have to blow up the you know um the the star wars ship you you know you have to um you know kick the butt of uh, cobra kai right you have to do those things you have to overcome that challenge that you before were incapable of doing until you've gone through the training or the discovery or the transformation and we we as coaches need and that's our role as a guide if we develop that posture is to take the confusion out of their journey not to like give it to them and you know be bulldozer parents or coaches and helicopter coaches who make life just easy with no obstacles but get very very clear because when people aren't clear when they lack clarity that is when things go astray and so the better the sooner we can develop that clarity with a shared language shared definitions the better off we are and it's tough with new athletes because in think of a classroom setting steve if you were teaching freshman you know level physics you'd be teaching it much different than a advanced seminar level physics for guided for you know seniors or graduate work uh, students but that's what we have as coaches if you're coaching in high school you have a wide spectrum of development in of athletes you know at different levels and same thing with college and even same things if you're working post-collegiately or privately you can't you know, and I did this for too long myself, take for granted at where the athlete's currently sitting. And so part of the breakthrough, part of the key ingredients is a very clear onboarding about a shared language, a shared set of uh, priorities, priorities, excuse me, and then a shared set of expectations about what the quote unquote process looks like and what you're going to measure and what you're going to esteem and what you're going to say, this is useful data and tools to help us interpret what's going on to get you, you know, to your goal, right? Because goals are important. Like I'm not a huge fan of just like setting goals and saying arbitrarily, I want to do X, I want to do Z. But if you have a goal, but, and then you say, this is where I want to be and this is where I am and there's a gap, what steps do I need to take and clearly define those steps to bridge that gap or narrow the gap? Then you can start to reach that goal. But until you do that, it's just wishing, you know, and that's, I think, again, another key thing about breakthroughs is understanding that the clarity of a shared language is vital if you want to create the environment and conditions for a breakthrough to not only happen, but also be sustained for a period of time as well.
Yeah, you know, it's uh it's it's funny that um you dropped a lot of pop culture knowledge here. Um Boom. Just give the John. people what they want, baby. <laughs> it's uh you know what else is funny is on that heroes thing is uh I can sit here and remember and and I think it was like gosh, like tenth or eleventh grade English watching Joseph Campbell interviews on the on the hero's journey as part of class and uh just like thinking, oh, this is pretty cool, but then not getting the significance of it yeah. until probably a decade later. I'm like, oh no, this isn't cool. This guy was a freaking genius, and he was a half this... miler, by the way, in college. You know, there you go. Of At course, my alma mater. So, there you go. Well, what what better thing could you have? Yeah. But I think that even there, it's like important to uh, realize and understand that because. It's these false narratives that we have, and this I'm going to tie this back to a breakthrough, is these false narratives that we have that they kind of get in our way, right? We see the hero as the person who figured it out. Well, Joseph Campbell's, you know, uh, research study shows that, like, hey, that isn't the case. That isn't how it works in real life or in pop culture, right? No. Um, we have these false narratives on what, how we define success or status, all these things on what it means and what we see versus what the reality is. And I think our job as a coach is to, to fight some of these false narratives. And if we look at breakthroughs, we have the same thing, right? We have this idea that like, Oh, if we just keep beating our head against the wall, um, a breakthrough, a breakthrough is going to ha- come. And then all of a sudden I'm going to be at a higher level and then I'm going to stay at that higher, le- higher level and I'm going to progress. And like, this is who, this is who I am now. And on the flip side of, on the other side of that is what I've seen is a lot of times when people have breakthroughs, the problem isn't, it isn't the breakthrough. It's the expectation raise that comes after it. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And instead of, I call it instead of having a breakthrough and then they try to raise the floor, they try to raise the ceiling again without like realize, without trying to bring the floor up. Mm-hmm. Right. So they say, Oh my gosh, I just ran 15 seconds faster in the, in the three K. Like I'm at another level. Like next time I'm going to be even better than this. Right. And then they try and force their way to be even better than this. And then they run 15 seconds slower. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Which that has that's... nothing to do with the physicality of it. No. It has everything to do with, with the mentality of it. Right. And then sometimes what happens, right? And I've seen this and I'm sure you have too, is if athletes break through and then come back down to earth because their new expectation is of this performance better than where their breakthrough is they're back down to earth is like devastating for them they think oh my gosh did i peak did i peak this season did i peak too soon yeah i peaked too (laughs) soon like i need a break like i'm i'm not going to be able to last till championship season like i'm on a downward trend now like oh my gosh and they freak out and can't handle it rather than seeing it as Again, kind of a, a natural reaction that that happens sometimes um, when that happens, you know. So I think it, important in this whole breakthrough narrative is not only like seeing the signs, symptoms, etc., and setting someone up for that, but also when it happens, it's like setting someone up for what's coming on the other on the other side, which is not the smooth sailing. Oh my gosh! Like I'm here now. Uh, I've made it. It's all like, this is what I need to do now. 
Um, but instead, those those peaks and valleys that will continue. And it's, you know, you see that manifested in worry. We're the only creatures that worry. A lot of creatures have fear, but it's momentary. It's moment. It's fear and it's, you know, due to an immediate threat. But we're the only ones who worry about the past, which we can't change, and worry about the future, which we have influence over, but not clear control, right? And this is where a breakthrough moment, whether it's in our, oh, oh, I had to work out of my life, and it just felt so easy. I was in this flow state. I was right at the edge of what's challenging for me, and I just felt fresh, and I felt good. And you have all these value judgments, right? And you, these value judgments qualifiers make it a status game. And so then they think they're now entitled to every single workout or race should be easy and good and, you know, crisp and not hard like that one kind of like magical breakthrough workout or race was. And that's where the coach needs to step in and provide a sober um, reminder, but also empathetic and encouraging reminder of like, no, look, that's great that you were able to hit a home run today. That's awesome. I, I enjoyed watching you do that. You've worked your butt off to be able to do that. But what is their medicine? Keep working your butt off, right? Really good training and preparation is very, very, very boring. <laughs> and I think now that's the other thing, you know, relating back to this day and age is we want new and new is um, provided to us at such rapid speeds. Like, Look at what football players are doing with jerseys, basketball players are doing with jerseys. It's what I call I call it the Nike newness. Every day is a new jersey. Every game is a new jersey, different colors, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's just manufacturing this need for new. And, you know, every brand or company does that because we've new provides a dopamine hit right? And a release and it feels good in the moment. And we know actually it's not actually the acquisition of the new, it's the anticipation. It's the yearning for the new, which is the thing that releases the dopamine. Um, and so, and that's just brain chemistry and we're just folly to it because we're humans who have this brain chemistry because we want, we crave new. But great training is very boring. Like talking to Martin Basinger with Hammer Media, and uh, who's a good friend, he turned me on to this concept of the Bonnerchuk methodology and weight training, which Bonnerchuk essentially says, you know, to whittle it down to be just very, you know, down and dirty, do the same thing over and over and over again, <laughs> over again, the same thing for like 30 to 45 exposures. So if you're going to lift, do the same lifts for 30 sessions, a month, two months, depending. Once you get through that plat, once you get to that threshold, that boring work will actually create a higher yield and return. And then you can bring in the law of variability by then slightly adjusting the lifts you're doing, but then just doing it again over and over and over again. I, you know, remind people like periodization works really well for beginners because it's new. Periodization is new. And if you go through a periodization, classic periodization scheme for your beginning athlete, it works great. It's brand new. But then you get to your more uh, medium level athlete. You can't just continue to just do that plug and chug model. You have to create more variability. And even more so as you have a more veteran seasoned and also um, a more elite level athlete. It's a constant game of you know, again, creating the conditions for breakthroughs to happen. But the key thing I think for me when I look at an athlete on the cusp of a breakthrough is fluency. How fluent and how fluid 
not only are they moving, but also how they're interpreting the work they're doing. Do they have enough fluency to be um, effort centric and, you know, body centric versus being watch or mileage or volume or numerical accumulation centric? Can they move from the accounting of the work they're doing to a more uh, deeper fluency about how they're doing and what they're doing moment to moment, week to week, race to race, right? And when someone develops that acumen and that trust in themselves to be able to deliver their best performance you know, on the day and just be happy with that regardless of what the outcome is, they're right on the cusp of a breakthrough. You know, never did I ever talk to like Michaela about, oh, you got to run this split and this split and this split to run 201. It's like race the race. You can do, you know, r- run to your strengths, position yourself accordingly to what's strong for you. Be in con, you know, it's just very loosely defined reminders to help her clarify her process and her journey and focus on herself rather than worry about what her competitors were going to do. Because again, you're releasing that power that you've amassed through preparation when you put everything, all the emotional weight or angst or worry or consideration on what your competitors will or won't do. So that's, for me, a key marker for a breakthrough. And then sustaining it is just, again, chopping wood and carrying water. Like just keep doing what you're doing. You don't need to get faster. You don't need to do more. Sometimes it's just dynamic equilibrium if you operate out of a systems model thinking process of saying, we just need to keep doing what we're doing. And that, you know, balance and that simplicity, even though it's not revolutionary or exciting or new, is tried and true wisdom and works and has worked because there is some validity, potency, and also importance to that. Yeah, you know, I I think the when you talk about that stuff, um, the story that comes to mind is always um, the one of the high school kid who goes from let's say four thirty mile down to four twenty mile, and now all of a sudden he thinks he needs to train as a four twenty miler, mm-hmm. right? So all his workouts go from let's say I don't know sixty seven sixty eight second four hundreds now to sixty five second four hundreds. And um, he thinks because his performance has improved, like he has to change everything to do it. And I think that model gets us in a lot of trouble. And it's why judging things solely based on, let's say, race pace for modeling all of our um, all of our workouts is is a problem, right? Yeah. And it's the same in the weight room. Like you talk to really good strength coaches, and it's the problem of maybe judging everything off of a percentage of of maxes, right? Because oh, all of the sudden I've lifted, you know, twenty pounds more than I ever have. So now every single rep on every single workout goes up by this percentage. So. Um, and that's where things start to get tricky because now you are wedded and you're held accountable and now you've created value judgment. Can you live up to this this very linear model or arbitrary model you create based off percentages, right? So same thing with the coach. Oh, great. You just ran a 420 for a mile. Now the Daniels table says because you did that, you can now do workouts at this capacity. And then you get going and doing them and it completely deflates the kid, you know, and, yeah. and it's just like what I need to see is I need to see rep- replicability. Can't have you done it three times in a row? 
Okay, give me a month of races, four races, five races, whatever. And then if they're trending at that new threshold, because, yeah, it is very exciting to progress. Don't get me wrong. It's like, oh, yeah. And then you'll run 420. All right, and then we'll do workouts at that level. And then you'll run 415, and then you'll run 410. You know, by the end of the season, you'll be 405 miler in win state. Like, the enthusiasm I used to have when I was younger coaching, way more naive. And it's, it's valuable. But temper it with you know, my suggestion is temper it with a excitement and enthusiasm for the process. You know, one of the things that um, the books, one of the favorite, my favorite books that I've read and I reread it every two years or so is this book called Squat Every Day. And it may seem like it's for the meatheads in the weight room, but it's definitely not. It's, I mean, there is, the weight room is a very sophisticated enterprise and um place just as the track is if you know what you're doing and what i love about the squat every day um, system or principle is it challenges the conventional thinking about what are optimal training intensities and frequencies you know it's not just designed like to improve um one squat max but actually it's improved and designed to improve someone's overall strength speed and athletic ability and what it basically boils down to is this concept of squat every day read yourself and as you squat every day in the weight room you're going to read how you're doing and you have permission to you know go at to upper thresholds or just get in a little bit of work just enough and um, that's good enough and to get some type of stimulus but the goal is to squat every day and have a minimum number of reps you can do that actually have fluency and movement rhythm and tempo and value to them and that's not much different from training for running, right? Run every day, run every day. Some days run faster than other days, right? It's, uh, uh, um, who's the, uh, the Mayo Clinic, uh, physiologist, Steve, your friend. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mike Joyner. Mike Joyner. Yeah. So Mike and you know, Mike's, Mike's very simply, you know, he, he says how to get better at running, run every day. And some days run faster than other days. <laughs> and it's kind of like it's a very good rule of thumb because it questions what these conventional intensities and volume prescriptions are. And that's how you have to think about critically in that. And, yes, you might be saying, like, oh, well, it's really difficult for me because people have these tight schedules with school or work or, you know, whatever. And I get it. I, uh, you know, that those constraints make it tough. But the idea of preparing for a breakthrough has to be very similar to preparing for an art show and people one have to love performing this has been a constant struggle for some athletes i work with is they love preparing and they love training but they're (laughs) scared of performing and performing for us is racing that's risky there's some unknowns which i think goes back to the uh this generation and the status yeah as well yeah. and the judge so yeah again that's why it's not to interrupt your point but that's why it's incredibly important to like uh, think about and figure out how to uh, work your way through that because um it can uh put people where they fall in love with their preparing and not with the performance why and yeah too preparing is also very clear right it's very it's very prescribed you know here's the workouts Here's the paces. Here's the rest. Here's the intervals. Here's the distance. Da 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 da. It's very cut for it. You can you can quickly surmise if you aced the workout or didn't. If you won the workout or lost. In a race, 
there's so many variables and unknowns you don't know and that's why it's really important to get self-focused in a race rather than an internally focused rather than external focused and sprinters have race models right they run their race model they stay in their lane that's what sprinters talk about all the time stay in your lane which means focused on your process hit your landmarks right and i talk about this with 800 meter runners i coach we have certain landmarks and I don't care if you're in a race with David Rudisha and Clayton Murphy or a bunch of 210, you know, JV freshman high school boys hit your landmarks because if you have – then you can have a debriefing and a discussion about what these landmarks are at these point in the race. And so it becomes a habit, right? It becomes automatic. At, you know, 500 to go, I do this. At, you know, 100 to go, I do this. You know, and whatever they are. I mean, that's how I, I worked with one of the first um, uh, champions that I, I coached in high school, uh, Julia Funk at Franklin, uh, way back when. You know, we had a certain landmark, you know, check. And it was like she was an 800 meter runner. It was the classic, okay, at 200 meters to go, don't care what the pace is, just go kick because she was brand new to the sport. And so it's getting her some competency and confidence in her ability to run really fast. And she'd run like, you know, 220 or you know 225 for the 800 but her last 200 would be like 31 or something right and as she could develop confidence you know we said oh you have a really good opportunity to be probably a champion in the 15 and it took time it took time it took time and she just kept wanting to kick at 200 but it wouldn't put her in the upper elite category so we started to build it out we said okay here at 250 and i'll put a you know, a cone or I'll stand there on the track or whatever, kick here in this little dual meet. Okay, now kick here at 300 to go. And at first she fought. I go, well, we're going to just do the same race plan until you get it. And then she got it and she won and she started getting confidence on her ability to, quote unquote, make an aggressive move or, quote unquote, kick further out. And then when the state meet came, she, you know, unseated the two-time defending champion in that event. And what she do? She actually made her move and strong move from 400 to go. <laughs> and this is a, a young woman who never made a move at the bell. You always waited, waited, waited till 30 seconds in the race. And here you have 65 seconds left to go. And she just put on the afterburners and, you know, kind of out of nowhere won a state title her senior year. But that was a very deliberate um, guidance by me with her in a race situation and pre- preparation situations to get her confident in her ability to do that. So by the time race day came, we just had to talk about run your race. Here's, here's your landmarks. Here's your, here's what you got to do. Run it. And that's, I think part of the clarity that all athletes, no matter the generation need when it comes to the track, because it's so easy to get caught up in someone else's race. And how am I, how, oh, how does this, how does this, you know, how does it compare to someone else? And if your race plan is be with this person for this long, you're no longer running your race. You are running someone else's race instead of, you know, be feel, you know, like say you're running 80% to your maximum ability through the first mile. And, you know, you got to reinterpret it to make it a little bit more internalized because that gives people a lot more calmness and a lot more enthusiasm that they can control it versus if you say run with this team in cross country or this team's number two runner in cross country, or you know, this person in this track race, if that person's having a bad day, they might follow the assignment, but they're way back there. Or if, or if the other person is a lot more seasoned or fit than you had thought, 
And then the athletes running over their heads, all of a sudden the alarm bells start going off too early on in the race. So that's where nurturing breakthroughs is really critical. And when you're seeing someone on the cusp of it, you know, it's not by um, happenstance. It's not a haphazard affair. It's actually a very um, methodical and uh, panoramic point of view where you're getting them to that threshold of a breakthrough and hopefully then you're sustaining them at that with your guidance, your, um, uh, your, the safe environment you're creating and the enthusiasm that you're bringing to help that hero on their journey and then have the quote unquote happy and happier ever after ending to their season that they work, they work so hard for. Man. You take it all in, Steve? You digest I, all that? I, no, I, I, I got an, I wish, I wish this was video because I could hold up my notes um, <laughs> that I was writing there. So I was going to say something else, but yeah, he, say it. No, what, say it, man. No. Give the people what they no. want. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. I, I think that is like, I'm sitting there. Listen, I think that's the, uh, the perfect summary of what it, what our expectations should be on breakthrough and how we how we should like frame it uh beforehand and coming off of it right and i think the one point you made there on like giving people some sort of like internal right awareness um is is an, an incredibly important lesson that i think is neglected and uh and uh, is being lost to a degree thanks to like the great availability of like GPS watches and the like, mm. um, you know, back in our day, like we didn't have that. until they We didn't even have around. the internet. I didn't even nah, know what it was. Oh man, this is like the old man podcast, but, <laughs> uh, but you had to like, you had to figure it out because you were like, Oh man, coach said like do this four mile tempo on this trail and I gotta split at the mile marker, but like, you know, before that, God knows what it is. <laughs> so you you had to just kinda figure out figure out your paces. I mean, I remember actually for one of our tempos in college, like our coach would um uh, we'd start it four miles out from the track, right? So we we jog four miles out. Um, and then run back and we didn't really have mile markers around the way. Like we had a split in there that was a mile, but it wasn't like mile one to two. It was like, you know, from roughly seven minutes to 12 minutes, there's a mile marker in there that we just have randomly. And that was what you had. Yeah. Um, so you had to, you had to like figure out how, how to listen to your body and pay attention and not to rag on the generation. Um, it's the same as like cell phones. It's not their fault, but like now we have to teach that skill. And I think that skill is important because if we want breakthroughs to happen, but sometimes you need to just read your body and go with it versus using the clock or using the watch and, sitting there and saying like, oh, I'm out too fast or I'm too slow or whatever have you, yeah. right? Well, a real breakthrough is the breakthrough of self-trust. And right. that's and, that's really what it is. Yeah, and I think if you watched the New York City Marathon recently and you saw the women go out in a relatively modest 
And then Mary Katani cranked a sub 67 second half. But, you know, even the American women, Huddle and Flanagan ran 70 minutes and change for a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other American women ran 71, 72, 73, uh, which is, was pretty close to some of theirs within a minute or two of some of their PRs, which is really impressive. Um, but I think that occurs because, like, they got into, like, they weren't trying to run a 2.30 marathon, let's say. Right. They got into a, like, oh, man, this is racing, and I'm racing. <laughs> well, and winners, you know, people who have won and have a lot of information, they trust themselves more than people who haven't. And it's it's one of those virtuous or vicious cycles. It's compounding interest, right? And breakthroughs happen, and I've worked with athletes who have trusted themselves and then done incredible things that they didn't think they're capable of but then they got back into a cycle of distrust and not trusting themselves because their faith was weak and they needed the constant proof that they were that good because they thought it's imposter imposter syndrome right they thought they weren't that good or um you know and that's more than anything is managing that mental and emotional interpretation about what they're doing and that's where breakthroughs are not sustained is in, in in that interpretation or lack thereof because now you've created a dynamic where you don't know how it happened you just got lucky it was all magic <laughs> and you, that's where you have to go back to like Steve and I talked about this kind of process and defining clearly what that process is for that athlete on their journey yeah no that's a good a great point and that's uh you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's why this this whole journey is uh, very tricky. But I think I think if there's one thing about the podcast and what we've tried to get across here is like a lot of times you see breakthrough as this bump in performance, and then you're just you're now that person, right? Mm-hmm. But what it real really is about is this journey that the athlete's going on, and a breakthrough shouldn't be seen as like the destination or the transformation to a new person necessarily. Um, it's just part of that journey. And part of that journey is that transformation, but part of that journey is the, uh, the peaks, val- valleys, bumps, setbacks, etc. Yeah. It's, that, I mean, it's kind of like happens. this book, what I learned losing a million dollars by um, Jim Paul. <laughs> Great book. And if we think in financial terms, Oh, a breakthrough is like, you know, having a million dollars in your bank account. That's a breakthrough. Now I'm just going to always have a million dollars in my bank account, no matter what. Not the same. No, definitely not. (laughs) You got to keep making money to have that million dollars. Like you have to keep your process, like just keep doing the things philosophically or the principles that got you to that threshold and you'll be all right. But that's the thing. Human beings, we are naturally, our default is lazy and stupid. That's our default. And you can see it all over the world for people who just said, ah, I'm just going to default. It takes a lot. And I've had, you know, periods when I've been in like a depressed state and that was my default. I, yeah, I, I just want to make it very clear that that is also our default. That's despite the fact that we put these podcasts out and other things like that. Um, our, our default is the same. Like there are periods and I just want to get that across because I think it's important because people ask both John and I, like, how do you put out content and how do you do all this stuff and coach and stuff like that? Uh, but there's also periods where both of us like just sit there and do jack shit. Um, 
they're not the funnest periods, but they happen. Oh yeah, real talk. Yeah, I you know yeah. I binged hard <laughs> this summer on the Avengers movie, um, cinematic cinematic universe. I never knew about it. I hadn't even seen it, and then all of a sudden I watched the Infinity Wars. I was like, whoa, that's an awesome movie. And you know I was in a, a down in the dump states personally, and I had a you know deflated time time of my you know couple months, and I was just like, it's all I did. <laughs> I read like two books, and I just watched all the uh, and, uh, all the marvel movies <laughs> and th- that happens you know yes. my favorite exa- my favorite example of that uh before we get back on topic is uh back when i was just out of college and uh actually living with uh brenda martinez's husband carlos handler um, shout out to carlos the big homie Car- down south love you guys there we go so Car- carlos and i uh we were we were training together and i remember one day like we we were in the middle of the grind and we went on a run in the morning, and then uh, we sat there and watched eight hours straight of The Office. <laughs> yes. And just one after another, after another, after another, after another. And, you know, that that's what happened. And that's totally fine, as long as that is not your, that does not become your normal, right? Well, it's, I, mean, your- I think it's the difference between this you know contemporary oh authentic i want to be an authentic person and be vulnerable and i was like no bullshit you have to be a complete individual and a complete individual there are great positive aspects to us there's a shadow side to us we have that it's dr jekyll and mr hyde right eastern philosophy has this on point yin and yang and at sometimes the yin is the thing the driving force and sometimes the yang and you just have to know, like, anyone is susceptible to being in depressive periods, and that's perfectly fine if it's only a period and not a constant, and vice versa, right? So there are peaks and valleys. There are ebbs and flows. It's wave-loading, right? Just how you have wave-loading methodology in training. You know, there's a lot, and then there's a little, and it goes up and goes down. The reason you know, sometimes that we can work at the capacity we work is because we're just like anyone else. You know, we can be a little manic and we can just go, all right, like this month, I read like 13 books and it was just like, we just just kept reading, man. Just one book led to another and it's like, this is awesome. Some books will be, some months will be one or two. (laughs) You know, I, I try to create habits around what I do because, you know, if you read, um, James Clear's new book, Atomic Habits, he shows, you know, and demonstrates very clearly and very easily to assimilate format about how habits, you know, run our lives, whether we know them or not. And so if you develop good habits and environments around you, you have a higher likelihood to be, you know, your most creative self or the the best incarnation of yourself more often than not. But there's just going to be days where you are just, frankly, burn out, (laughs) like, or, weeks or months or when you go through an identity crisis when you know you invest your heart and soul in something and it just you know lays an egg falls flat and no one cares like it's very difficult to rebound from that but as an athlete as long as you have healthy coping mechanisms or you're you can crawl out of that dark hole you're stronger for it because you're going to meet them over and over and over again and that's it relates to a breakthrough and sometimes a breakthrough comes in people's most, you know, isolative or depressive moments, and then they get this spur of motivation or insight that then thrusts them to make this amazing piece of work or this new business or this new enterprise or what have you. And so you have to, as they say, weather the storm. 
Yep, exactly. That was a, a fantastic tangent there. Yeah, um, just giving the people a little something. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're living and breathing people too. We bleed just like the next person. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's uh, a little bit of reality because I think that's uh, incredibly important. Um, not only because it's in vogue, but it's also setting expectations. Um, and like we talked about, oh man, how's this for time? Like we talked about, about status and Instagram is we don't want to create the false expectation that, uh, John and I have anything figured out at all. And that we, uh, we are hyper producing, uh, machines of, uh, content and, uh, coaching. No, we, uh, we fail miserably and, uh, binge watch TV shows and, uh, sit on our couch and get nothing done and, you know, uh, and go through so, periods where we think all we've done is crap. Like, I mean, yeah, I tell yeah. you, like, yeah, a lot of the stuff I look back, God, I just can't believe I put out gibberish and crap. You know, but that's just our way of wanting to get better and just exploring this time, this precious time that we have in life. Like, it's a, it is a journey. It's an exploration. It's a game. What game are you playing and why are you playing by those rules? Are you playing by the rules because society told you to? And some of the rules that society tells you to play by are very good rules. Like, you know, don't kill people, you know, don't uh, do not do too much drugs or alcohol. Like, yes, there's some very wise rules out there. But some other rules that might make you feel empty or, you know, without, without uh, just, you know, hollow, those might not be the best rules to keep playing the game by. It's a uh, good sentiment and probably a nice sentiment to end on because, um, you know, you got to figure out what the rules of the game are and if you want to follow them. And uh, if not, how you uh, how you change or uh, change those rules around, which is certainly possible um, to do. And that is a lot about what breakthroughs are. It's about change, progress, clear definitions and also taking away the you know, burden of expectation that is neurotic and corrosive and instead reinterpreting or injecting a bunch of excitement and enthusiasm and curiosity about what could I do if, you know, what could I do if, and I always, you know, to end on one more quick antidote, I like to, you know, sometimes give people an opportunity and say, you're meeting a challenge or a task that you think is far beyond your ability and you have no shot, no hope at all of, you know, achieving this goal, whether it's to win conference as a team or win nationals as an individual or whatever it is, you know, instead of focusing and centrating on all the many, many and valid, potentially valid reasons why you can't or couldn't or shouldn't or actually shouldn't do it, why not list the, the, the reasons why you could? And if you have one or two reasons why you could and you really feel cemented in them and they're of palatable and tangible reality to you, you have a shot. But if you just focus on why you shouldn't do all, you know, be able to achieve these things, then you'll never have a shot. Because at the end of the day, we're the ones who have to give ourselves a shot before anyone else will. Ah, uh, magic. That's why I always like to tell my college kids... A race is about setting yourself up where you have a shot. <laughs> Amen and to that. That's it. And that's how it is in life. Like, give yourself a shot if you if you don't make it. You don't hit the mark this time. It's not the end of the world. Um, you got plenty more bullets in the chamber. So, 
On that analogy, we will say thank you again for listening. Uh, if you like the podcast, well, let us know. If you have any questions, let us know. Reach out on Twitter, all that good stuff. And um, Yeah, and if you can think of someone who would like to hear what we have to say, you know, share it. Because that's really, it's a whole grassroots movement. Steve and I don't advertise this too hard. You know, pass it on. You know, it, we're not making oodles of dollars on this. We are trying to make a change and trying to contribute. So if you can think of anyone who hasn't heard it who'd like to, please recommend it because that word of mouth coming from a friend or a peer or a colleague means a hell of a lot more than us trying to blanket advertise it on, you know, Facebook or somewhere else. <laughs> Where, wherever those kids watch, uh, wherever those kids listen to podcasts now. Potlum, ah, those kids. Yeah, kids. <laughs>